Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we are very honored to welcome Ambassador Ron Kirk to our show and our program, uh, which is going to be all about voting and voting rights. And uh, Ambassador Ron Kirk uh, is currently senior of counsel in Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher's Dallas and Washington, D.C. offices. He's co-chair of the International Trade Practice Group and a member of the Sports Law, Public Policy, Crisis Management, and Private Equity Practice Groups. And Ambassador Ron Kirk was appointed by President Barack Obama and confirmed by the U.S. Senate in 2009 as the United States Trade Representative. And before that, he was mayor of Dallas from 1995 to 2001. And he is a native Austinite, is one of those purple squirrels born and raised in Austin, uh, who is a Longhorn, graduated from the University of Texas Law, and has over 30 years of extensive experience in politics, entrepreneurship, the law, active citizenship. Uh, welcome to our show. Well, I still don't know what to call you, but I'm going to call you Dr. J because it just sounds so cool. <laughs> Dr. J was one of my heroes, Julius no, Irving, the original doctor. As well. Yeah, so we, we have that in common. Yeah, well, thrilled to be with you, and, and you were kind to give me that introduction. But uh, in addition to voting, I would say to the degree that a large part of our audience may be fellow Longhorn along alums, uh, Texas X's, as we say, they wouldn't forgive me if I didn't say hook them horns and beat OU because we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, hook them horns, hook them horns. Um, you know, the vice presidential debate just uh, happened when, when this show comes out, it'll be out on Tuesday. So it'll be out uh, basically six days later. But when we think about um, where we're at in the election season, this election cycle, this 2020 year of racial reckoning, I want us to talk about active citizenship, the idea of bipartisanship, the idea of uh, American democracy, interracial, multiracial democracy. You're part of a group of African-American elected officials who really, you know, President Barack Obama talked about the Joshua generation, those who came after Dr. King, who were bene benefited from uh, the 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 end of formal uh, legal racial segregation were able to go to predominantly white uh, law schools like University of Texas at Law, but also became the uh, a new generation of black mayors. Like you became a mayor right around the time that people like yourself, David Dinkins in New York, um, Douglas Wilder became governor of Virginia. So this is not the very first class of the late 60s, early 70s, but this is by the 1990s. Uh, you became mayor of Dallas and a, sort of this new generation of black elected officials uh, who tried to do um, so much around issues of equity and racial justice and poverty, but also thought about entrepreneurship and growing the pie, growing the economic pie uh, for all people, but black entrepreneurs as well. I want you to talk about both your career um, in the context of being an elected official, but then as we move forward, to this current period, sort of the contrast between a period where it seemed as if Republicans and Democrats worked together uh, during the 1990s uh, in certain ways on certain issues, 
in ways that now we have hyper-partisanship, we have real division, we have voter suppression, active voter suppression at the federal, at the state, at local levels in certain cases. Uh, it's such a different time. And I, I, I want to get your perspective and some wisdom on where we're at today. Well, you've given me uh, a lot to cover and unpack, but since we at least framed this as a discussion about voting and empowerment, let's start with with, with at least the, the most relevant factor. Uh, when this airs, at least in the state of Texas, early voting will have begun on Monday, October the 13th. So if nothing else that I want um, those of us who might tune into this podcast to take from it, if you have not, get up and go and vote right now. Do it early uh, because we know uh, because of um, not just the vice presidential debate, but more critically, um, the ending of the presidential debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden was disturbing for a couple of reasons. And one that drew the most attention was President Trump's refusal one more time to condemn white supremacists. But in the same breath, then turn around and, and some of us think explicitly, but certainly implicitly encourage his supporters to do everything they could to protect the ballot which many of us know is nothing more than code for encouraging his supporters to come out and try to intimidate from voting. When you yes. combine that with the actions of Governor Abbott, who inexplicably two weeks before the start of early voting in the state of Texas changes the rules yet again for the return of mail-in ballots. And my point is, have a plan to vote, early voting is going to be a week longer than it normally would be, but because of COVID, because of all the things that, that we've mentioned, uh, there is more anxiety around it. And so one way to avoid the lines, the intimidation, the uncertainty that that could potentially exist on November 3rd is to go vote now. Um, now, back to your question, you mentioned that I was I forgot. I don't know that I've ever heard that term used before to describe us rare uh, black folk who grew up in Austin. But I did grow up in East Austin in the shadow of the Capitol, uh, right across 35 between 11th and 12th Streets. And I am um, um, somewhere between what you referenced President Obama's um, self-definition as a Joshua baby. I've always described myself as a first-generation beneficiary of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and that I'm, I'm young enough um, to remember, um, old enough to remember um, um, having attended segregated schools and drinking from segregated water fountains and uh, the disconnect, frankly, between the, those of us who grew up in East Austin and the University of Texas, which at that time was 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 begrudgingly beginning to to quote unquote desegregate, um, and one of the animating factors in my life, both in my decision to become a lawyer 
and also always be engaged in the civic life of our country was, um, you know, watching my parents suffer all of the indignities they had to for the simple right to vote and the passion, the urgency that they carried with them around everything they were doing in the 50s and 60s uh, to help um, remove obstructionist tactics like the poll tax and literacy tax and other efforts that were put in place post-Reconstruction and in the middle of Jim Crow. And so the thought of not being a good steward of everything our parents, many of your listeners' parents and grandparents did, to give us the right to just walk in that poll and make a determination for the type of people we wanted to represent us, free from intimidation, free from the threats of violence. Um, the idea that we would not be good stewards of that, that, that struggle is just not in my DNA. So that's one of the reasons I decided to go to law school was as a kid, I knew who Thurgood Marshall was. I had an acute understanding that the biggest gains being made in terms of social justice and combating racism was in the courts, was because of courageous lawyers and principal judges. Uh, and I, and I, I think that's a great segue. I want, I want to ask you about that, the law. You talked about Thurgood Marshall, of course, uh, NAACP, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, and arguing the Brown dishes in ni- 1954 and later the first African-American Supreme Court justice. What do you think about the way in which the law, when we think about the Shelby Holder decision in 2013 and this idea of voter suppression, are you surprised at the way in which the law really in your lifetime went from being really considered a champion of voting rights, a champion of civil rights, to really um, parsing those rights out in much different ways, depending on the ideological makeup of not just uh, not just the Supreme Court, but federal and appellate and circuit and other courts. And and what do you think about the voter voter suppression that certainly President Trump has articulated uh, at times in concert with his support of certain groups that are are actively trying to suppress the vote, including white supremacist groups? But just the very fact that a state like Texas has closed over 700 polling locations since 2013. Well, in a state it, like Texas, yes. Doctor, I mean, Pennell, it is, um, regrettably, it's not surprising. I mean, I was bitterly disappointed with the court's decision in Shelby. Um, but what we've seen happen, I think, was predictable in light of that. And, and I would say, This, um, as we say at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where I'm a trustee, we call it the Alabamification of America. And to be sure, this did not start under President Trump. Uh, This began, and I would say Democrats, progressives, people of color bear part of the responsibility because we got complacent. Mm. We thought when we elected Barack Obama, the judge would, the job was done. We were so in love with on such a high with his election that in the 20, the critical 2010 midterm elections, which were also a redistricting year, we did not go back to the polls. 
And as we know, Republicans flipped something like 13 state houses and governorships. And if you go back, almost in every one of those cases, the very first thing they did was attempt to restrict women's reproductive rights and put in place many of these onerous restrictions on the right to vote that you articulated, where there was all of a sudden multiple voter identification statutes are very aggressive efforts to, you know, quote unquote, purge the voter rolls. And we saw that begin to manifest itself in places like Texas and Mississippi and Alabama. And once it became the norm there, because of the reality that the Supreme Court had shifted to one interested more, as we used to say when I was growing up, uh, there was this horrible saying among young lawyers of color uh, to never forget uh, that black folks, white folks get justice, black folks get the law. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that manifest itself, not only in voting, but think about the question posed to uh, Senator Howard Harris and Vice President Pence when they asked about whether, when the moderator asked whether or not we believe that Breonna Taylor's family got justice. Kamala Harris answered, obviously, no. And Vice President Pence predictably hid behind the fact that, well, we followed the law. But all of that goes to your point. Because we have not paid as much attention to the role of the courts in holding, upholding uh, the, 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 the truth, the ideals of the Constitution, shifting one to a much narrower definition, we are now in the position that we are in today. And that's another reason I think that we have to go to the polls in mass is to understand uh, that as Congress becomes more deadlocked for the reasons you enumerated in your introduction, most of the issues that we care about are now being determined in the courts. And you think about the Trump administration coming in, trying to block immigrants based on Um, where they worship. If we think about the Shelby case, we think about reproductive rights, the rights of the LGBT community. All of these are ultimately being determined by federal district courts and circuit courts and ultimately the Supreme Court. And that's another reason it is critically important um, that we not be deterred and make sure we go to the the polls and make sure we vote for people that will appoint judges who will uphold the law, uphold the ideas of the Constitution in the same tradition of Thurgood Marshall and Earl Warren. And I do have to draw the point again, because this is a a podcast originating from your work and my love of the University of Texas, uh, that we do have to know um, that 10 years before Brown versus Board of Education, the first major case Thurgood Marshall won relative to education was Sweat versus Painter, yeah, which he sued right. the mm-hmm. University of Texas um, to, to overturn the notion of separate but equal education in terms of the application of the law. And that ultimately made it possible for people like me and Rodney Ellis and so many others uh, to have that ability to attend that yeah. wonderful university. Ambassador Kirk, here's one of the things I want to talk to you about is this idea of citizenship and voting, because I've had 
I've debated a couple of times Congressman Jim Clyburn, um, one time on C-SPAN and one time at the University of South Carolina about this, where he was very, very disappointed about Black folks in Ferguson not voting. And I was too, but I, I, I thought he was too hard on them in this sense. I said how all the data shows us uh, the more money you make, the more employed you are, the higher your level of education. Uh, in other words, the more you feel like a citizen, the more you, you're going to vote. You know, uh, There's connections and correlations with home ownership. There's connections and correlations with levels of income and levels of wealth. Um, so when we think about the people who are less likely to vote, it's the people who are least likely to feel like citizens, people who are living in racially segregated, economically impoverished areas. So I want to, I want, I wanted us to talk about that. Why, why did so many black people not turn out at the polls in 2010? Is it complacency or is it disappointment and some of the economic uh, transformations that did take place under the Obama regime uh, did not trickle down to that group of people? Right. Um, um, so when we think about this idea of voting, I think of voting always as the tip of the spear of my citizenship. Um, and I'm active in, in my daughter's school. I'm active in so many different areas, but I'm also very privileged to be that active. I know there are people who are just sort of struggling, struggling, struggling hard, whether it's connected with incarceration or poverty or mental illness. Uh, they are not homeowners. So housing affordability becomes a big issue. And for African-Americans, we are disproportionately overrepresented in all uh, 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 bad social economic indicators and we're underrepresented in all the good ones, right? And some of those, the good ones are things you're connected to in terms of great law firms and been an elected official and, and been an ambassador. So all these different things. So how can we extend and amplify that notion of citizenship to the millions of Americans who feel left out of that, especially black folks vis-a-vis -vis voting? Well, you, you, you know, you, you don't ask, you don't ask one answer question. <laughs> Look, there's so much in that, but I would say one, um, the challenge we have is to make, as I like to say, and I, I, I think I'm sure I appropriated this from someone else, the dividends of democracy and civic participation become more difficult for people, some people to define the further away you get from that first act. And what I mean by in the 60s, when we didn't have the right to vote and we had to fight for it, when we got it, we saw some immediate dividends. We were all of a sudden able to elect Carl Stokes or Maynard Jacksons or, or you know, others that we hadn't before. And we were able to see the difference in what that made and policing and education and access to jobs and, you know, on the heels of these uh, very courageous and important court decisions, you had a president that I don't think gets enough credit in Lyndon Johnson that passed the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, fair housing. You know, there was an explosive amount of progressive legislation that people could point to and say, man, this was worth it. Well, now nobody's keeping you from voting. Even with everything else we've said, if you want to vote, you can vote. You get off your butt, you go register, you take your driver's license. But now we're a little more removed from that. And now we are not as, we're not as, as, as passionate about education, about upward mobility, because our numbers have inverted, as you've said. 
And, but, but what we have to do a better job of is articulating to people one of the reasons you get such a gross application of justice like many of us thought we saw in the Breonna Taylor case and we may see in George Floyd is because you don't vote and because you allow legislators to pass laws like these stand your ground laws. You make city council, you allow city council people and legislators to become disproportionately influenced by the police unions who always endorse candidates that only kneel at the altar of saying, I will, you know, back law and order and put that above any concerns about the application of justice you have laws that make it almost impossible to get justice. But you meant you started out, um, Dr. J, talking about your conversation with Jim Clyburn and Ferguson. And what I can tell you, though, is you were both right. For all the reasons you articulated, those people didn't vote. But within four years of that, Ferguson's a city that has almost a 70% African-American population they went to the polls. They now have their first African-American mayor, their first woman mayor. They have a much more representative uh, policing unit, and they have lowered the temperature and created a much healthier environment to resolve some of those very difficult issues. And, you know, whether it's not me, whether it's Killer Mike, or some of these other rap artists that are speaking to our communities in a way they wouldn't listen to, frankly, me or you, is, you know, people have to understand you aren't just voting for the president. You're voting for who's going to be on that school board. You're voting for who's going to be the district attorney and have the courage uh, to bring charges against these police chiefs. You're going to vote for the mayor and city councils that are going to make sure you have a police department that looks like your communities. And so one, I would say it's incumbent on us to draw a very clear line between what some of our communities who feel that their vote doesn't make a difference. We have to show them that even though they may not have the education, the employment status, any of those other tools, they still have the most powerful tool in American can have, and that's the right to vote, and that that vote can manifest itself in substantive change. Now, when we think about this right to vote, um, in a lot of ways, the narrative we tell about the civil rights movement is that we won that for all people, especially Black folks, but it's for all people with the VRA and the constant VRA extensions. Um, when you think about American democracy, why are we still struggling um, over 50 years after the Voting Rights Act and 150 years after the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870 that gave black male suffrage, white women got the right to vote in 1920 and most African-American women in 1965, August 6th, with Lyndon Johnson's signing of the Voting Rights Act. Why are we still struggling in this democracy for the right to vote? And why why is there such active voter suppression? I think it's really uh, remarkable that this is happening in 2020 in such a blatant way, whether it's Governor Abbott, President Trump, uh, the GOP, the Republican Party. Why is this allowed? And people have talked about 
is there a kind of legislation where we could end this once and for all? I know people have talked about a John, a John R. Lewis National Voting Rights Act that Congress could pass. But I also fear what the courts might think of a new John R. Lewis <laughs> Voting Rights Act. One way you circumvent all of that, and people may be frustrated with me, it happens because we don't vote. And the reality is power belongs to those who will pick it up and use it. And the sad reality of the fact that even at best, even in a year in which America is excited about the election of a young and dynamic and hopeful Barack Obama, only 60, just a little above 60 percent of us went to the polls. Yeah. That meant 40 percent of us didn't even care enough to go. And the one way I tell people is that, look, if nothing else, you can't get a better return on your investment than voting. Because you go from a presidential election, which we voted 60%, you go to a gubernatorial election, that'll drop down by 30%. You, the sad reality, we have elections for city councils and mayors and local officials in which 15% of us may go to the polls. If you're one of that 15%, that means you get an 85% return on your investment. Now, if there are people I know we, we have talked a lot about, you know, we are basically having a discussion about values voters. And I'm going to try to not make it partisan, but everything you and I have talked about, about values, about equity, voting rights, civil rights, the right to education, the right to housing, the right to marry. There are people who are economic voters. And what they mostly care about is the distribution of wealth. And what they have found is that the fewer value voters there are, the more likely they are to succeed and then have the ability, instead of investing in schools and education and infrastructure, come in as President Trump did and say, wow, Barack Obama saved this country from financial ruin, pulled it back from the brink of a recession, got the economy going, here's several trillion trillion dollars I'm going to redistribute again to the wealthiest of Americans who don't need help at the expense of the bottom few. That was a ridiculously distressing number in the paper the other day that I think if I, and you would know, I think it said the 56 wealthiest people in America are worth more than the bottom 165 million combined. Well, they like it that way. And you know what? For all of the reasons, the excuses we make not to vote, when you don't vote, you vest them with the power. And so what we have seen uh, in, a, in a much more naked fashion, uh, led by President Trump, Governor Abbott, and others, is a desire to hold on to that power because they know if we vote, if we have unfettered access to the polls, we're going to vote to say, look, we don't have a problem with the creation of wealth, but we think that that should be a dream for everybody. It should be a dream for the working family, the first generation family going to college, the first generation immigrants, the way it's always been. Nobody supports, um, nobody wants law and order in our communities more than poor and black and Hispanic families, but we want that to be accountable. We don't want that to be administered in a way that the justice that's meted out is different based on the color of your skin of, of your skin and your wealth but the only way these folks get away with that is frankly because we don't vote and yes would it be great to have 
a wonderful capstone on John Lewis's marvelously courageous life to pass a renewed Voting Rights Act. I tell people all the time, and I can say this from somebody who's run for office. If you want to scare the pants off every elected official in America, go and vote and let them read that we didn't just have a 60% turnout, we had an 80% turnout. And then you keep that fire and you go back to the polls and vote for governors. You don't need a voting rights or anything else if you will do simply what Joe Biden, what Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris are begging you to do, have a plan, get your act together, and get out and get to the polls and vote. Now, I promise you, if we had a 70% change, I mean, if we had a 70% turnout in this election, it would send shockwaves through Washington. And we would see it in the type of legislation and laws that are passed from Washington to Austin to City Hall. All right. I want to talk about what if there is that 70% turnout um, and hopefully there's no violence on election day. Uh, but what about the prospects of this president saying that he's 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 not going to leave office and that um, he's already suggested multiple times that the election will be fraudulent, especially uh, mail-in ballots that seem... Uh, Republicans seem to consider will be overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, what, what, what do you think about it? I'm going to be I'm going to be arrogant enough, confident enough to say if there is a 70 percent turnout, there will be nothing to contest. Mm. He will be voted out of office and perhaps the biggest margin in American history. Secondly, he doesn't have anything to say about whether he comes or goes. He will leave. If nothing else, we know by his pattern and practice, Donald Trump's a bully. And Donald Trump always threatens. This is the same guy that told us he had secret tapes on Comey. He's got this. And you call BS on him. I, I, I don't. I used to use the analogy, and I stopped because my daughters reminded us at the end of the day, the Wizard of Oz, as we said, he was a very good man. He was just a bad wizard. But, you know, but Trump, when you pull the curtain behind, you know, he's just an overweight guy in orange makeup making a bunch of threats. And I, I, I just I don't want people worried about the mechanics of how you get him out. You go vote him out, make an unequivocal vote that you want our politicians to respect all of our citizens whether they voted for us or not, that we want an America that is constantly moving to fulfill that dream in our Constitution that we are all, in fact, created equally and have the right to the same destiny, that we want to always be moving toward that prophecy of Dr. King, that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. You do that, and I promise you Donald Trump will take care of himself. He will sneak out of Washington with his tail between his legs. But you should know, you are right. This is not going to be easy. I mean, as we've seen from the plot against the governor of Michigan to mm -hmm. the president, very, you know, we stopped saying dog whistle and now saying using a bullhorn to mm -hmm. appeal to these white terrorist organizations, which is what they are. We need to stop calling them militia. 
these are terrible. Yes. And you no, should absolutely. know, you know, and I have, you, you know, Dr. Joseph, you're right. You and I are in the upper echelon of Americans by any slice, whether it's African-Americans or the 1%. But I love reminding my friends who still go, oh, well, you don't think Trump's racist. You don't think we do violence. And I remind them all of those young girls blown up in that church in Birmingham were my age. We yeah. call Birmingham, Alabama, bombing, bombing him for a reason. Yeah. And all of that violence was to keep people of color from voting. This is not new. This is not fictional. It's real. But we have the resources. We have the tools. We have the wherewithal to make sure that you can get to the polls, particularly if you vote early. If you're over 65, take advantage of the ability to vote absentee, to vote. And it will be worth it, even if it takes a few years to manifest itself. Well, I want to talk about the dividends that you're talking about, because what can we do to get young people excited about the dividends of voting? I know Black Lives Matter has been really, really focused on voting as well. And this is a movement that uh, has a very specific policy agenda around education, immigration reform, uh, wealth uh, inequality, income inequality, segregation, the whole works that I've read and I've taught uh, a movement for Black lives. And certainly uh, groups like Legal Defense Fund and so many important uh, civil rights organizations have connected with the movement for Black lives. Um, what can we do to show young people who've been energized in the streets um, of all colors uh, but especially students um, and young people of color. Because remember, in 2012, Black voter turnout was 66%. And it was the first time in American history that the Black voter turnout was more than the white voter turnout. White voter turnout was 64% for Barack Obama's second election. And Black turnout was 66% led by Black women. And then Shelby happened. <laughs> and then our voter turnout went down in, in 2016. And there were different states like Ohio and Florida that President Obama had won twice that really curtailed uh, uh, early voting. They curtailed the ability of Black churches and Black people to coalesce and, and, and go to the polls. Well, and we're we still, we're and it's important to note, because I'm not going to let him all dig, we did in the state of Texas. Yes. You know, early voting, we used to have what we call, we started, and I'm not being correct. When I ran for mayor of Dallas in 1994, at least in Dallas County, we're going to take credit for, for, for creating what we called Super Sunday. That we used that first Sunday of early voting to get all of our people mobilized. It spread around the state. And you're right, in 2010, again, after redistricting, what did Texas do? They took away that last Sunday. So mm -hmm. they didn't have that ability to do it. Uh, but I want to go back to your question when you asked, the easiest way to get people motivated is to remind them of their success. Because my college basketball, my, I was a very, we, we, talk, we both talked about our admiration for Dr. J off record. Uh, fortunately, because I was such a, a average basketball player, I had to have good grades and go to school. But my high school coach, when we were going bad, used to say, look, guys, stop trying to be heroes. We, we got to just get points on the board. Let's see the ball go through the hoop. 
But when I talk to young people, I look at them and not just Black Lives Matter. You elected Barack Obama. Everybody, you know, we quickly want to forget most people gave Barack, then Senator Obama, zero chance against the machine of the Clintons. But it was young people, college kids who slept in their cars, who for the first time organized on Facebook and social media in a way that all us old school politicians didn't know and totally swamped the Democratic primary in a way that was unforeseen and elected Barack Obama. When we talk about the power of the courts, I still believe it is young people who challenge their parents about their fear of marriage equality that did in a period of 10 years what it took us 40 years to do to have marriage equality become the law of the land. I'm convinced that's because young people challenge their parents and why do you care? How does this affect your life? It is young people that have always agitated for social change. And, and you know, and I remind them when we were marching for the rights of those garbage workers um, and, and John Lewis, it wasn't just John Lewis that was a young student. C.T. Vivian was a young man. Martin Luther King was a young man. Rosa Parks, social revolutions have never been led by 65-year-old men sitting comfortably in their law office trying to think more about retirement than change. It's always been advocated by young folks who were willing to question authority and say, this is not right much the way those fabulous young women who organized Black Lives Matter did. So you have the power, you have the history, you've done it before, you can do it again, you just have to stay the course. Now, when you think about the Democratic Party and racial diversity, now that we have the first uh, Black vice presidential nominee in Kamala Harris, do you think the country is soon going to be ready uh, for a first female president? And could that first female president could be, uh, if we do get a vice president, Kamala Harris, a, a black woman? You know, that is sitting there thinking about what your ring's going to look like when you still got two more games to play in the championship. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I love sports analogies, but I never will forget that game six between the San Antonio Spurs and the Miami Heat, and they were and they brought out the trophy. It was in the corner, and that ball bounced the wrong way, and ball bounced out to the corner. And instead of the Spurs putting on a ring, you know, uh, Ray Allen got a long rebound and hit a shot that only he could, he could, and things changed. Look, if you are excited about that prospect of a first woman, a first African-American woman, Asian-American, Indian-American woman, the most important thing we can do is not take our eye off the prize. This election begins next Monday in Texas. Go to the polls and vote. And I, and I don't wanna presume all of our listeners are Democrats, but if you are, a voter, a values voter who cares about justice, who wants to return to a more sane and civil America, then I would say go to the polls and vote. Make that reality. 
All I know is Kamala Harris will have a much better chance to become President Harris if she's sitting in that vice president's office. But if we drop the ball now, we will be setting ourselves back a generation, not just because of what will happen politically, but as afraid as many of us are of how the court will tilt to the right with President Trump rushing to confirm a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if he has if, the, if he has another four years, he will reshape the court in a way that's going to impact the lives of our kids and potentially our grandkids for another 40, 50 years. Hmm. So my final question, Ambassador Kirk, is um, do you feel hopeful at this time? You know, you talked about the obviously the the, the white supremacist plot to overthrow and to kidnap the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. We saw the first presidential debate was a disaster. But in the vice presidential debate, Vice President Mike Pence said he didn't believe there's systemic racism. Um, we've seen, like you said, no more dog whistles about racism, but really bullhorns. The country is so, so hyper-partisan divided, where we, we are living in dual sets of reality, where some people want a... Uh, uh, a, a multiracial, multicultural democracy, and other people uh, want something that's starkly, starkly different, dramatically different. Um, that takes us way back to, to to a period in time where Black people were not considered citizens. Um, how are you feeling about our democracy and about civic activism and just the future of this republic? Well, I get one. Thank you for having me. And if any of your listeners if we haven't run them all, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Uh, but one, I would say I am always an optimist. I am always, I always just have to believe that there's going to be more light around the corner. I've seen it in my life, but I'm enough of a realist to understand, as I like to say, if you believe in that prophecy of Dr. King's that the moral arc of the universe bends slowly, but it bends toward justice. Inherent in that is an understanding. Somebody is trying to bend that thing the other way. It's not bending itself. So one, uh, whether it's Dr. King, or I like to say whether it's in, you know, and I know I would hope there are listeners of all faiths and religion, but in, in every, every religion I know, there is some concept and understanding and an expression that the children of light have to be as organized as the children of darkness. Or as, as you know, Kurt Vonnegut said, which I like better, the angels have to be better organized than the mafia. But if <laughs> people ask me why I'm optimistic, this in the case, we don't have to go back to when I was a kid in the 60s. We elected Barack Obama president just 12 years ago. That's not ancient history. Was that a good America? Was that an era America in which more of us and expressed the belief in that society that you articulated in which all of us of every faith, every culture have dignity? It absolutely was. But what we saw in that is just as we all came together those who didn't believe in that vision didn't go away. They doubled down. And, and as much as we demonstrated, young people demonstrated 
uh, the ability to use social media for good. We now know social media is also probably the greatest tool that hate groups, militia groups, groups that don't believe in progress use to come together and reorganize. And so, yes, I'm optimistic. Yes, I'm possible. But it means that we cannot let go of the ark. We have to keep holding on. We have to be willing to stand up and always fight and speak out against injustice, against misogyny, you know, against those who would deny people their God-given rights because of who they love. And if we believe that there are more of us who believe in good, who believe in the value of all, we will prevail. But we have to understand, um, as we did when I was a kid growing up, no battle stays won. You have to remain vigilant. That's why you have watchmen. That's why you have to continue to to invest in the education of our kids, to give them that hope, to give them that dream, to give them that better life they want. So did they have that upward mobility? And this becomes a natural and easier for them to do so. And I will never yield on the basic premise. Whatever your economic, social, ethnic status, the most powerful tool you have to bring about the change you want is one, to vote, and then invest in your and your kids' education. Well, we're going to leave it on that, Ambassador Ron Kirk, with this hopeful vigilance. We have to be watch women and watch men uh, to protect our citizenship rights, to protect our democracy, to protect our right to vote. And the dividends of democracy are what voting produces. Um, so I hope everybody goes out and votes, votes uh, early, has a voting plan for everyone in their lives um, who can vote and to be poll watchers, um, man the phones, do everything you can to ensure that this 2020 election uh, provides the biggest uh, democratic turnout. Uh, and I mean, small d democracy, democratic turnout in American history. So Ambassador Ron Kirk, thank you so much for joining us. We've been uh, having a great conversation with uh, Ron Kirk, who's former mayor of Dallas from 1995 to 2001, was the U.S. trade representative during the Barack Obama uh, administration, um, has over 30 years of um, expertise in law, in politics, in entrepreneurship, and in social and civic activism. And he's currently a senior of counsel in Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher's Dallas and Washington, D.C. offices. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Kirk, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Jane. I've got to say, we are so blessed to have you at the University of Texas. And I know I've fed a lot, but, but uh, and I'm not saying this to add another honorific. The most important thing relative to this conversation, I was Texas Secretary of State in 1994, appointed by Governor Ann Richards. And I have to remind everyone listening again, by the time you hear this, the election will be underway. November 3rd is not election day. It is the end of election day. If you can hear us, you're in the state of Texas, please take advantage of the opportunity to go and vote. And God forbid, if you are challenged, just know your rights. No one other than that precinct judge can challenge your right to vote. 
So I don't care if there are people there in suits or with guns. They have no ability to stop you from voting. So know your rights, have a plan, and make sure you go and vote. That's it. We'll end on that note. Vote. Tuesday, October 13th, this is when this is coming out. And so so vote. Please vote and exercise your, your democratic rights. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.